The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Well, good morning. So right before I uh, came up here, I was told to tell you guys, hey, we're welcoming more folks in. So if you don't mind, I know 2020 was weird, scooting a little closer so we can welcome some folks in. That would be awesome. So yeah, my name is Billy Glosson, and uh, I am the lead pastor of Coromdeo Church in Morganton, North Carolina. And so just a little bit about us before I jump into our text this morning. We launched, everybody get ready for this, March of 2020. How's it going? What's up? Yeah, so uh, that was a decision we made. And uh, it was crazy, right? So God was really kind to bring us here. We, we moved at the end of 2018, took 2019 to build a core team, and we got, you know, kind of all comfy in our home for a long time. God in his kindness grew our team, and we built towards a launch in March of 2020, and then we hit COVID right in the face, and it was tough. We moved online like pretty much everyone did, and we figured out what life began to look like in that season. And in a season where we thought, okay, God's just going to grow us deeper instead of wide, God chose to grow us deep and wide. Uh, We started meeting outside, which was all of the things, uh, hot and uh, crazy. And in the middle of it, my wife was pregnant. So yeah, uh, that was a lot. It was the most anxiety and stress inducing season ever. Yet in the midst of all of it, again, God was kind. This past year, as we kind of looked forward to what, was, what God might do, we've been praying for a long time about where God would have us, and we've been hoping and anticipating moving into a space in the center of our city. So something about Morganton really quick, uh, before I again jump into the text that's really unique and interesting, is Morganton is a town that's growing very much as we're in between you guys and Charlotte. Yet at the same time, there's so much uniqueness in our city. Uh, One thing that's really unique in particular is 20% of our population is Guatemalan. And there is a building that was being built and and poured into that is called Little Guatemala, where one side of it is an indoor soccer complex. The other side is a coffee shop and kind of like a cultural center. And we approached them about potentially using the space. They were super excited and wanted to welcome us in. So in May of this year, we moved inside after being outside for forever. And uh, it was awesome to do that. And so that is where we are at right now. We've been meeting, we've been gathering. It's been incredible to see God's kindness and faithfulness as we continue to grow. And one of the things that we're just kind of running kind of right into is just the reality that, man, people are dealing with a lot. Life is heavy, life is hard, but the amazing truth is we have hope. And that's actually what we're talking about this morning is that incredible hope. In the midst of this unbelievably, insanely hard season of life, God's faithfulness and kindness remains. Now, for me, as I was looking at Jonah 2, which, by the way, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with us, is where we're going to be this morning, I I kind of thought back to when I was in college. And uh, no offense if you're in college, but there's something pretty hilarious and sad about a poor college student's life predicament. Here's what I mean. When I was a college freshman, I had zero income. I moved across the country. I'm from North Carolina, actually from the town that we planted in. And I moved to Missouri to go to a small Bible college in the middle of nowhere because that's just how I roll. We go and, and here's how it worked. On Sundays, because it was a small Bible college, the dining hall is closed, right? Everybody needs to go and, and be able to worship and serve at other places. 
And so they were like, hey, we, we were not going to provide meals, which meant on Sundays I was either extra pious and fasted or I had to figure something out, right? And so for me, I always just kind of had to scrap together whatever change I could get. And I figured out back then, you know, it was about you know, 15 cents to buy a pack of ramen noodles. And so that's, a, that, if you're ever on The Price is Right and you want to know, like, in 2006, how much, that, that's a story for another time. The thing is this, I ate sodium-rich, glorious ramen noodles a lot, and I mean a lot. The problem was there was a war between my college kind of poverty and my laziness. Here's what I mean. I would, uh, again, have some loose change, and I could either pick one of two things. I could either take a dollar and buy like seven packs of ramen noodles or one Texas-sized cinnamon roll. <laughs> now, I would ask how many of you have survived off of vending machine food, but I, I don't want to shame anyone in here this morning. The problem with this machine was that it was notorious for eating the food, uh, eating your money. And, and I was like, you know, okay, I, I'm going to risk it for the biscuit because I want it. I want this cinnamon roll. And so I went downstairs and go ahead and just for a minute with me, picture the vending machine, whatever it is, you know, whatever you see that shining red beacon that's glowing ice cold Coca-Cola or whatever your beverage or food of choice is, right? You've got the exact change you need. You put it in the machine. And instead of hearing that familiar coin drop, Right? Instead of the dollar going in, it gets stuck. So what do you do? Right? Do you just go, ah, dang, I really wanted that Coke. No, man, you drop kick that thing. You shake that thing. And so that's what I did. I'm downstairs in the dorm. I put my coins in, and I don't hear them go down, and I'm frustrated. I start shaking it. Little do I know it has an alarm on it. So it starts screaming out there, and I'm like, I don't even care. It was embarrassing, right? But that's what we do, right? You punch it, you drop kick it, just like my former 18-year-old self. You do whatever you can so the outcome's your delicious ice-cold beverage or tasty Texas cinnamon roll. Now here, track with me for a minute. That's what's happening in our text today. God is going to shake Jonah up so that this knowledge that's been deposited in his head actually makes the descent to his heart and fruit will come out. This is a metaphor that's stuck with me for a long time that Tim Keller uses to kind of point out how much of a gospel lesson the book of Jonah can be. You see, the gospel needs to drop in many of our hearts. Maybe, maybe 2020 was a year for you where you've grown up in the church or maybe you've been familiar with the church in the last you know, several months and years and God has given you his kindness, shown you his amazing grace, but it's just stayed right here. And perhaps life has been difficult so that God would rattle you, shake you, so that that gospel knowledge would actually drop to your heart. See, the majority of us here, we, we know the gospel, right? We've got the information. I mean, we know the information, and it's like that Coke machine where sometimes you put a coin in, and the coin gets stuck, and it doesn't make the drop. And so again, we need to be shaken this morning so that hopefully that coin would drop and that we would be able to bear fruit. So if we're to live the life that Jesus calls us to live, that, that he came to give his life for and to lead us into, for that to happen, friends, the gospel has to fall in us. And if the gospel doesn't fall, then we're going to find ourselves with, again, plenty of knowledge, but no means to apply the hope of the gospel. And so if the gospel doesn't make that descent to your heart, then you're going to spend the rest of your life dwelling on circumstances. And you're going to blame your lack of joy on whatever that circumstance is. And so for those of you, which is probably most of us, 
who are in a hard season right now, or for those of you who are coming out of one, I, I want you to think about what fuels your thoughts. What fuels your joy or your lack of it? What steals your joy? What, why do you get depressed? Why do you get lonely? See, this is hard, but it's true. It's probably, friend, because you're making a God of something other than Jesus Christ. And until it drops in you that he is God, that he loves you, and that that, friend, is enough, then you and I, were going to live our lives on this kind of insanity cycle. We're always going to want more. We're always going to want better. Things will never be enough. We're always going to be lonely. We're always going to be blaming somebody else. It's someone else's fault. We're always going to need something else, whether it's a new spouse, new friends, new job. We're always going to need more. We're always going to want more. And around and around we go. And it doesn't matter, friend, what the circumstances are. The problem at the core is that you and I fail to believe the gospel. And we're going to see in our passage today God's great love for Jonah and God's great love for us. And here's what I want you to catch. God will shake us so that the gospel will drop. God will shake us so that the gospel will drop. And, and here's why I say that, because again, at the root of our problems, and, and notice I say problem, not circumstance. At the root of our problem, we find kind of one need, one remedy. And the root of our problem is this, our pits, our failures, our troubles is the failure to believe the gospel. You and I fail to believe the gospel. That's kind of why we end up in these pits. That's why we end up in these storms, because we fail in a million different ways to trust in Jesus, to trust in the gospel, to trust that God is all we need. And so because we do, right, all these different things happen in our life, all these peripheral things, all these ramifications happen, but at the heart of them is one thing. You and I truthfully really don't often believe the gospel. And at the core of all of our needs, again, one thing, we need the gospel to penetrate our hearts. We need to believe the gospel with all of our mind, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. We need to believe all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. And until we do, here's what happens. We white knuckle it. It's the do-goodism of the quaint Christianity that many of us grew up with. It hit me like a ton of bricks moving back to the South. Literally, I'll talk to people and, and I'll ask them what's going on in their life. They're like, you know, I just need to try harder. I just need to do more. I just need to read my Bible. I just need to love my kids, man. I just need to not get so angry. I just need to have patience. And here's the thing. When we try to be good people who white knuckle it, we'll be good for days. We'll be good for even weeks at a time but it will always come back and we stay in this insanity cycle. And until our hearts are pierced and changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to continue to fumble. Now, I'm going to say this. It doesn't mean that when we follow Jesus and we believe the gospel that all of our circumstances miraculously get better. Okay? That's a lie. That's the prosperity gospel. It's not what we read in scripture at all. Right? Bank accounts can still get depleted. People can still get sick, but our joy doesn't go away in the midst of our circumstances. And what we see this morning in Jonah 2 
is a beautiful picture of what it looks like when the knowledge of God's grace and kindness actually makes the descent to the heart. Because remember, if you were here last week, Jonah was a religious man who had the word of God. He was a prophet of God. And he ran as fast and as far as he could. He has this message, and yet he was still a self-righteous sinner that runs away from God. Why? Because it hadn't made the descent to his heart. And when we're, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this. So let's go to our passage, and let's see first Jonah repents. Verse 17 of chapter 1. Let's jump back just a little bit. It says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So let's stop here for just a second because this is where a lot of us get hung up, right? So maybe you're reading Jonah and you know it's 2021 and you're like, that's not real, right? Like that's weird. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know what's happening here. Is it, is, it, is it miraculous like that God actually appointed this giant fish? Did maybe Jonah die and then God resurrected him in the belly of this fish? Here's what I would say to you. Two things. First, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what that means is if we believe a guy literally got up out of the grave, we can handle a fish. We can, all right? We can handle that. The second thing is this. I want to share this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. It'll, it'll be on the screen. I think it's really helpful. He says this, while it's commendable that we should carefully examine the authenticity of such tales, there are reasons for caution as we do so. The most important is, of course, that too much discussion about the great fish can divert us from the real issue. The narrative is not really about a fish at all. The fish has only a walk-on part in this gripping drama. Focus on this great fish and we may lose sight of the great God. So, Missio, let's not get lost on the fish, okay? Here's what you need to know. All the fish is, is an ancient Hebrew form of Uber, all right? It's getting Jonah to where he needs to go. That's all you need to know about the fish. The fish is here to get Jonah to his ultimate destination. What's important, what, what is significant is what happens in the fish. So, look back to the text with me. Let's look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So in Jonah's response here, you and I get kind of a front row picture, a front row seat to see what's happening. See, Jonah's finally in a pit. His running has caught up to him. He's finally cornered, and he's finally having to look at himself and see who he really is, to see his own heart, his life in relation to a holy God. 
there's this transition that happens at the beginning of chapter 2. It's, it's then. And what's happening is it's transitioning from Jonah's been running. Jonah's been avoiding God. And now he's seeking the Lord. And he's praying. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. That word Sheol, it's a Hebrew word that means grave. So almost immediately... I mean, just barely into this thing, two chapters into this book, we see this amazing transition. Jonah's been running as fast and as hard as he can away from God, getting as far away, going to Tarshish, which again, if you look at a map, it ain't close. He's running, and now God has him in a fish. And his first response is, I cannot run anywhere but to you. So he runs to the Lord. He repents. Repentance begins inside the fish. The gospel is starting, right, though Jonah wouldn't call it that. The good news of God's kindness is starting to fall in Jonah's heart. And we know it is because the first step towards having the gospel actually do something in us, well, friends, it's repentance. It's always repentance in response to a holy God. And Jonah, who's been running away, is now in the belly of the fish. He starts running towards the Lord instead of away from him. Friends, this is a picture of what it looks like when God's grace actually transforms our hearts. This is where we see Jonah repent because guess what he realizes? He realizes his depravity, his sinfulness, his brokenness. Jonah realizes that before a holy and righteous God, man, he's messed up. He's made some mistakes. In fact, look where his mistakes have gotten him. Is nowhere to go. There's no religious activity you can do in a fish as a prophet. It's not like he's going to get up and start impressing anyone. He's not going to quote scripture. He's not going to start speaking God's word. He's all by himself inside the belly of a fish. And at that point, he finally gets it. I am a sinner. This is where my sin has led me. Now, if you're a germaphobe, you know, we, we think you're like, oh yeah, Pinocchio, that's maybe what you're thinking of. No, this is gross. Okay, it's nasty. If you're claustrophobic, it's a little terrifying. That's where his sin had led him. Jonah says, I'm an absolute sinner and it has led me to the absolute deepest place I can be. If you read through this, he uses the word deep over and over and over again. Jonah is realizing the depth of his sin. And the language of chapter 2 highlights this. Jonah now realizes the depth of his depravity. Before now, what was his sin? Well, he thought he was righteous, right? And the Ninevites? Oh, man, they're a bunch of fools, a bunch of sinners. They've got deep issues. And here, in the belly of the fish, he's saying, actually, I've got issues. My sin is deep. I have no reason to boast. Listen to what comes out of his heart. He says, out of the depths out of the depths. Lead me, God. I am as deep. I am as wicked. I am as sinful. I am as depraved as the Ninevites, if not more. And I'm dead. I'm dead because of it. That's the first realization. And I just wonder, do you and I get the depth of our own depravity? Do we read Ephesians 2, which as we were dead in our sins, are we so numb to that? so familiar with it 
that we don't actually take time to think about how broken and wicked we are. And I don't say that because I'm like, let's all be depressed together. That's not what I'm trying to do. But here's the deal. Until you and I realize the depth of our depravity, until we realize the bad news, then good news just isn't going to be good news for you. Because you're going to be thinking that you deserve it. And Jonah is saying, I get it. I get it. I am a deeply sinful man. Not just what I do is sinful, but who I am. I am a sinner. But that's not the only thing that happens. Right? If that was the only thing that happened, right? If we just saw Jonah gets into a fish and realizes, I'm a sinner. Let's pray. All of us would leave totally lost, confused, and frustrated and depressed. He would just be kind of floating around aimlessly in the sea, wailing about how depressed he is, how pitiful he is. No, Jonah repents. And as the gospel, right, as that good news of God's kindness and grace starts to make its descent to his heart, he sees something else. He sees God's grace. The second thing that collides with Jonah is that Jonah, despite the depth of his sin, Jonah realizes that God is gracious and that his grace is infinitely deeper than Jonah's sin. Look back at verses 4 through 7. Verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now listen, what's crucial here is not just that Jonah realizes he was a sinner. What's crucial is what he looks to. Again, verse 4, what's amazing here is not just his realization that he's sinful, but also what he looks to. Then I said, I'm driven away from your holy sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And so here's a great question for you and me. Why in the world is he thinking about the temple? You know, is he in the belly of the fish like, ah, this reminds me of like the golden glorious. No, of course not. Like what's drawing his mind to the temple? He's got a lot of things he can be thinking about. Why is he thinking about the temple? And why in the world are the thoughts of the temple causing his faith to rise even as he sinks? Well, the temple, if we look to the Old Testament, the temple is where God's presence was. Yes, God is, again, omnipresent. He is present everywhere, but the temple is where God chooses to manifest his presence and communicate and relate to his people. The temple was a building, and inside this building, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, which it was separated, right, by outer courts. And imagine if you were to walk in here and there was this huge big curtain in front of the stage. Behind that was the Holy of Holies. Behind that curtain sat the Ark of the Covenant, Again, now get away from, from Indiana Jones for a second with me, okay? The Ark of the Covenant to the people of Israel was the place where God manifested his presence. The temple, the Holy of Holies, within the Holy of Holies, through the Ark of the Covenant, was God, where, where it was God had specifically designed it and desired to communicate with his people. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the law. And so Jonah is thinking back to the temple, and he's thinking to two things, one good news, one bad. 
He's thinking, and as he does, his mind is taken to the Ark of the Covenant, specifically the law that is within the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God, where God literally says over the law, if you want to relate to me, right, a holy God, the only way that you can relate to me is through the law. If you want to be in relationship with me, if you want to be in fellowship with me, you have to be holy like I am holy. That's what the law said. And we look at this God and we, we can kind of think at this time, you know, again, we're going to get to the gospel. Many of you are already like, we have a Jesus, but we got to stay here for just a second. We could think, man, that's kind of rigid of God, isn't it? To, to expect people to obey the law, but this plays out every day all over the place, doesn't it? A great analogy that I've heard is, is that of a symphony, okay? So think about a symphony. Orchestra's together, they're practicing, everything's going well, and as they're playing, there's one musician who's like, you know what? I'm going to play a totally different piece of music, What's the conductor going to do? Is he going to be like, sounds good, buddy? No, he's going to get frustrated, right? He's going to go to that musician and say, hey, man, if we're going to have a relationship, right, if this is going to work, if we're going to make this happen, you've got to follow the music. You've got to follow the script. Now, if the musician says, hey, man, you can't tell me what to do. I'm an artist, okay? <laughs> I'm improvising here. Missio, that's what we do. This guy, he may be trying to express himself and improvising great, but that's wrecking the whole symphony. There's sheet music. There's a script in place. It's been written. If this guy goes off base, it's going to sound like garbage. And the musician is either going to have to repent, and not repent for being a musician, right? But repent for wanting to be the conductor. Or he's going to get kicked out of the orchestra. Because that's the only way that's going to work. It's the only way that relationship works is over the law. And God is saying the same thing through the temple, that the only way you can relate with me is over the law. And that's really bad news. Why? Where's Jonah? In the belly of a fish. He obviously does not get the law right. And he's realizing that he hadn't gotten it right and he's looking to the temple and he's thinking about how he has failed. And so maybe you're thinking, okay, why does that make his faith rise? Why is that helpful? Because that's the bad news. The good news is that on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a golden seat. On top of the law of God set a golden seat. And once a year, what would happen is they would shed the blood of the lamb. They would pour it over that seat. It was called the mercy seat. And what God was saying to his people through the temple, through, through the Ark of the Covenant, is despite your breach in our covenant, despite the fact that you don't obey the law, I'm going to propitiate, right? And that, that word propitiation is a word that means the wrath that is due you has been paid for by someone else. And so Jonah is thinking about the law, how he had failed, about the temple, meditating on the temple, thinking about, here's the law. I'm not holy. God's holy, but I'm not. But praise the Lord for the mercy seat, where the blood of the lamb makes atonement for me. And so what Jonah is doing is he's dwelling upon the temple. What's colliding is his heart. What he's doing, and he doesn't even realize it, is he's preaching to himself. Friends, for us, we have even greater news. For us, we don't have the temple, we have Jesus. The veil 
It's no longer there. It's been torn in two. There's no need for sacrifices every year because Christ has paid the penalty for our sin once and for all. And he offers to us his obedience, his righteousness, that when you and I stand before a holy God, even though we have failed in a myriad of ways, again, God doesn't look at our sin, but at Christ's perfect obedience. Jesus, friends, is the good news and the bad news of God all in one. He is the wrath. He is the lion. He is the lamb. He is the grace of God all at the same time. Jonah in the belly of a fish, his depravity is becoming real to him. But what is also becoming real to him, if not more so, is the grace and mercy of God for him through the mercy seat, for us through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And friends, this is profound. And I know some of you are thinking, I don't know, I thought this was about a fish. It's not about a fish. Jonah's in a fish and what's colliding in this pit, in this storm, in this grave are these two things, that he is sinful and yet God is gracious. And what causes this to happen in Jonah is when the news of this grace is no longer just knowledge that's up here, but his life-transforming truth that hits here. When these two things collide, the depth of his depravity and the greater depth of God's love for him, when those two things collide, Jonah's faith rises as if he were born again. Again, this whole story is pointing us to Jesus. It stirs and points us to a greater hope than Jonah had. And listen to his response when these two things collide. Right? Verses 8 and 9, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you hear what Jonah just said? I'm done with my idols. Right? I, the knowledge of God's grace, it's, it's hitting me in my soul. It is plunged to new depths within me. This is what happens, friends, when, when the gospel is no longer just something we kind of do on Sundays, but when it radically transforms the whole of our lives, when it plunges to new depths in our hearts. Jonah says, man, I'm done. I'm done with the approval of man. I'm done with being self-righteous. I'm done with caring what people think about me. I'm in the belly of a fish. This is where my circumstances are and they have not changed, but I'm done. I'm smashing my idols. I'm smashing my self-righteousness. I'm leaving it here and I'm going to follow and pay my vows to the most high God. I'm going to follow him. And this is profound. This is what happens, friends, when the gospel stirs our hearts. We become done with the idols, the lesser things that cannot satisfy, that cannot give us hope. I mean, we know this, right? We just sat at home trying to do anything to pass the time to give us comfort. None of it does. Jonah is a hard story, right? If you guys read ahead, you're like, but doesn't it get like worse again? Yeah, and that's what happens to many of us. We should know this, right? Let me, let me quote rather than try and explain it, right? This, this verse, salvation belongs to the Lord, is kind of like the, one of the most pivotal verses. This is a quote from Tim Keller. This is what he says. He says, when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh the first time, Jonah ran in the other direction. Why? Well, the reader assumes it was just fear, but later in chapter 4, it reveals that there was also a lot of hostility in Jonah towards the Assyrians and the Ninevites. Keller goes on to say, I believe the reason that he did not only have 
he did not only have pity on them was because he did not sufficiently realize that he was nothing but a sinner saved by sheer grace. So he ran away from God, and we know the rest of the story. He was cast into the deep and was saved by God from drowning by being swallowed by a great fish. In the second chapter, we see Jonah praying, and his prayer ends with the phrase, salvation is of the Lord. But as a prophet, doesn't he know this? He knows it, and yet he doesn't know it at all. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is thought to be the central verse of the Bible. It's an expression of the gospel that salvation is from and of the Lord, period. No one else. Self-righteousness is not my salvation, right? Salvation is from the Lord. And as a prophet, shouldn't Jonah know this? And as believers, shouldn't we know this? We know it. Yet we don't know it at all. Martin Luther said that the purpose of ministry, right, the purpose of the job of the pastor was not only to make the gospel clear, but to beat it into your heads and to beat it into your own continually. Why? Because we come here on Sunday morning, right? We sing. I mean, I've heard Brian preach. You guys have an incredible preacher, right? A credible pastor who's very gifted, You're stirred, you're compelled, and then on Monday, what are you doing? You're back at it again, right? And here's the deal. It's because the gospel doesn't just go away. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's something we need on Tuesday when we're fighting with our spouse. It's something we need, right, when we're at our job and we're like, I cannot stand this guy that I work for, right? We need the gospel. (laughs) Listen, you might get an A, on your justification by faith test. But if there is not a radical and concrete growth and humble love within you towards everyone, right, even your enemies, then do you really know that you're a sinner saved by grace? Right? If, 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 if there's not a radical, concrete confidence and joy within you, even in difficulties, even in sickness and bank accounts depleting, then do you really know that you're a sinner saved by grace? So friend, what must you do if you lack the humility, if you lack the love, the joy, and the confidence you need to face the life issues before you? You should not try to move on past the gospel to get to more advanced principles. Rather, this gets back to what we've been talking about all morning. You should ask God to shake you, to jolt you, so that that gospel coin would make the descent to your heart and that more of the fruit of the Spirit would come out of you. And until you do that, friend, until you do that, despite your sound doctrine, you will be as selfish, scared, oversensitive, insensitive, anxious, and undisciplined as everyone else. Those are the attitudes that characterize Jonah. If he would have known God's grace as deeply as he should have, he wouldn't have reacted with such hostility and superiority towards the Ninevites. But the experience of the storm of being in the belly of the fish, brings him back to the foundation. And he discovers, rather he rediscovers the wonder of the grace of God when he says salvation is really from the Lord. He wasn't learning something brand new, but was discovering and rediscovering and realizing more deeply the truth and wonder of God's kindness. And all of this leads us to verse 10. When this happens, when God's grace falls, it says, and then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Jonah gets what God wants him to get. And when that happens, he's kind of recommissioned, as it were, 
to go. Jonah is now equipped and ready to go and love a great city that God is asking him to love, but not until the grace of God falls within him. This morning, I'm wrapping up right now. I want to pray for you, but before I do, I want to address the three different groups of people that might be in here this morning. The first group of people, these are those of you who maybe have never really grasped the depth of your own sin. To talk about hell, to talk about a holy God, to talk about storms of merciful wrath, that that seems rigid, seems unloving. The idea of hell frustrates you. And friend, I would say it's probably because you don't grasp it. You don't grasp in accordance and in contrast to a holy God just how sinful you and I really are. And listen again, I'm not trying to just like make you sad. But here's the deal. Until you understand, as much as the Holy Spirit allows you to understand, until you understand the depth of your need for grace, you're going to remain self-righteous. And not only that, right, probably more insidious than that is you're going to continue to believe that what you get from God, he owes you. And if you don't realize how sinful and how undeserving you are, the good news will never be great news to you because you deserve it. And I'm telling you, man, if you're in here and you grew up in church, you've done all the religious things, you're a religious person, but you're not transformed by the gospel. And you're not transformed by the gospel because you've been told your whole life how good you are. Friend, you're not good. You're not In fact, do you guys not remember, we go to the Gospels, a guy comes up to Jesus, says, good teacher, and he says, who is good? No one is good. And that's the first group. And can I just tell you, until you realize how bad you are, until you just look that in the face, the Gospel's not going to be good news to you. It can't be, because you don't need it. You deserve it. Friend, that is the most contradictory attitude to the gospel imaginable. So that's the first group. The second group of those who are in here this morning, you do realize how sinful you are. You do. But what you don't realize is how much more God is gracious. In fact, you're on the other side of the coin from the first group I was talking to, whereas the prideful, self-righteous person wallows in their own pride about being good, you wallow in your own pride and make yourself a victim because you're just too bad. You're too bad for God. There's no way that God could love you. And I, listen, I know that that sounds really humble, but friend, it's actually really prideful. What you're saying is, I'm worse than God is good. There's no way he can forgive me. There's no way he can love me. There's no way. I mean, he knows what I've been thinking. Here's the thing. Maybe you're feeling like, I just need to do more. I need need to read. I need to pray. I need to serve on Sunday. If I do this and I do that, you don't understand grace, friend. Or maybe you understand grace, but you don't understand the grace of an infinite grace. God, infinite. You can't. His grace is infinitely deeper than your sin. And until you realize that, you're going to remain a victim. Well, God doesn't love me. Nobody loves me. I'm bad. No, 
He does love you through Christ. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate that the veil has been torn. We only have to look to the cross to see God's great love for us. And finally, the third group of people in here, man, the gospel is at work in you. It has fallen in you. And what I want to encourage you to is that it can always fall to deeper places. God's grace is like a mansion. It's like a mansion, and it's a mansion with unending rooms. It's not like we go into the house of grace and we're like, okay, I've got all the grace I need. No, we can always go deeper. There's always more. There's always another room, another closet. There's always more grace. There's always more ways that the gospel can fall deeper and deeper within us. So what I want us to do is before we come to the Lord's Supper, can I just ask you and and me, can we just preach the gospel to ourselves? Because listen, this is what I want you to do every day. Because if we don't learn how to do this, to to, to preach the gospel, we're going to wind up running away from God. We're going to wind up in a storm. We're going to think that this storm is because of this, it's because of that, and the storm is always because you and I fail to believe the good news of the gospel, right? Paul in Philippians 4, that verse that we always take out of context and put on t-shirts and mugs, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is about Paul saying, whether I have abundance or I have nothing, in all circumstances, I can have joy. Why? Because of Jesus. Again, the problem is you and I fail to believe the gospel. What I'm telling you is that like so many saints before you, Whenever life gets difficult, whenever moments are impossible and hard and your circumstances seem unending, you can say he is enough. Jesus is enough. Through his people, he is enough. Through his word, he is enough. He loves me. Even though circumstances come, even though trials come, he loves me. If you can learn to preach the gospel to yourself and you will see how wonderful he is, friends, embrace the love of Christ this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that we are a people who are easily, easily, easily frustrated, confused, and we allow our circumstances to dictate our response to you. This morning, God, as we get a front row seat into the gospel being rattled in someone and making the descent to their heart, We ask, God, that you would do the same in us, that you would rattle us, that you would shake us, and, God, that the gospel would plunge to new depths within us. Stir our hearts, God. Compel us to you over and over again and again. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.